In this episode, we turn to the social and political impact of consumer debt on the lives of poor and working class people. Average household debt in the U.S., mortgages, car loans, student medical and credit card debt now exceeds $96,000 and is therefore greater than the median household income. A dramatic increase in national consumer debt began in the mid-1980s and currently stands at $16.5 trillion, making it a key feature of capitalism in the 21st century. To discuss the implications of this reality, I'm joined in conversation by New Labor Forum author and editorial board member, Andrew Ross. Ross is also a professor of social and cultural analysis at NYU and an activist who helped found the Debtors Collective. His article, Why We Need Debtors Unions, will appear in New Labor Forum's winter 2023 issue and form the basis of a talk at the School of Labor and Urban Studies that we'll turn to in a moment. Andrew, thanks for your groundbreaking work on this topic, one that receives far too little attention within labor and social justice movements. Thank you. The connection of debt and labor. Labor is wrapped up with debt in oh so many ways and, and going back a long way. I think David Graeber's book, Debt, 5,000 years puts debt peonage back at about 3,500 <laughs> BC in Sumer. Anyway, so take us back. Yeah, it is, Paul, it is a very long history. And at every point in that history, you find the imposition of debt being used as a way to deepen the labor exploitation, whether it's, you know, the debt slaves of antiquity that you just mentioned, or the, the role of debt in the Atlantic slave trade, or indenture, or sharecropping, or company scrip, which is a kind of insidious form of it, loan sharking. And if you look at the present day landscape, we, we really find many examples from payday lending to the bonded labor of migrant workers. You can't cross into a rich country if you're a migrant labor without taking on massive amounts of debt, which you then pay off. And then student debt itself, which is a particularly acute problem, which many people do see as a form of indenture, you, that you have to go into debt order to find employment and labor and then pay it off. So we have a saying within, within our debt resistance movement that debts are the wages of the future. Because quite literally, when you sign a loan contract, you're promising your future wages far in advance of the labor that you will perform in order to earn the ability to pay off those debts. So the intertwining of debt and labor is really very profound. And, and for us, it's a no-brainer really to see the debt movement in some ways as an extension of the labor movement, you know, with significant differences. And, and so that's one of the reasons why we've thought about organizing around debt in ways that are perhaps, you know, similar to the labor movement, but also really have to be quite different in other respects. You talk about debt as being wages of the future. In a way, they're also, though, debt acts to obscure and pad current insufficient wages, wage stagnation, poverty wages. So our cheap credit seems to have also had that kind of an impact. You want to talk about that? Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. The precipitous rise of household debt that you alluded to in your introduction 
I mean, it really starts to kick in from the 1980s onwards. And it is, in many ways, a result of a wage stagnation. You know, the fact that average working wage has pretty much been stagnant since the mid-1970s. And the only way really for households to keep themselves afloat, keep their heads above the water, is to borrow money. And then secondly, the rise of user finance, social goods, which is related, but also distinct because it reflects the financialization of the economy. The fact that all of our major household goods, our major social goods like education and housing and healthcare and transportation, I would add, are heavily user financed and, and are heavily financialized as a result. So they generate streams of revenue for the banks and other lenders in a way that has always been the case. But I think in the last 25, 30 years or so, we've seen this sort of marked uptick in the graphs. Statistics all show this precipitous rise. The Debt Collective also talks about carceral debt, which many of our listeners may be surprised to understand the extent of it, probation debt, a way in which the whole criminal justice system is based on debt because of the bail system, just for starters. But then the kind of debt, even parking debt and so forth, that gets people sometimes into prison. So yeah, talk a little bit about the work of the collective around carceral debt as well. Yeah. Actually, uh, the topic of my new book, Cars and Jails, Freedom, Dreams, Debt, and Carcerality, which I co-authored with Julie Livingston as part of our research lab here that's at NYU in our prison education program. We're charting all of the ways in which the criminal justice system generates debts for the most vulnerable, the most economically vulnerable people in this country. And at every step of the process, there are financial obligations that are created by the system. And even you mentioned that traffic fines, it's remarkable, and this is something we explore in the book, it's remarkably easy for a simple traffic fine, and that's a flat fine because we have a flat fine system in, in this country, which is regressive. Other countries have sliding scales when it comes to traffic tickets. But it's remarkable how easily a traffic fine can put you on a pathway to detention. And this we tried to chart in, in the book. The Debt Collective has a carceral wing now. We're trying to diversify beyond student debt, which has occupied most of our attention. And so now we have campaigns in carceral debt and housing debt and, and medical debt. I read on your website that the average prisoner leaves prison with about $13,000 worth of debt. That was surprising to me. Yeah, there's innumerable ways in which that sum accumulates, you know, from fines, fees, and surcharges that are imposed by the courts. And a lot of the, the impact of revenue policing on that, the fact that more and more of our local government budgets are covered by revenue policing, police officers, you know, upping the fines and fees and issuing more and more traffic tickets. And then there are all sorts of debts are accumulated while you're in prison, mostly from commissary. The cost of staying alive in prison is considerable. And then you add on these debts at the end of the sentence on release or parole, probation, and a lot of private contractors are trying to take their cut at every step of the process. So this is a huge burden that confronts incarcerated people on re-entering, on release, and makes it very difficult for them to get back in their feet. Right. And then, of course, it has a long history. Douglas Blackman's book, Slavery by Another Name, talks about 
in the post-Civil War period, the way in which freed slaves were taken for vagrancy and jailed and then bail imposed that they couldn't pay and then went into a kind of forced labor and mines and all over the place, especially mm -hmm. in the South. Well, especially in the South, but there's very important Northern history also. So that kind of convict labor was also in New York State, for example. You'll notice most of the prisons are really far upstate, and they were sited and located there for the purposes of providing cheap or free labor pool for building roads and other mostly tourist infrastructure in the Adirondacks and a lot of the parkways that lead upstate. That's a very important history too. But in general, the unfinished business of emancipation really, technically speaking, really does relate to prison labor, which is a forced form of labor. You don't really have an alternative. And, and that relates to the 13th Amendment, which carves out an exemption for prison labor an exemption from abolition. So the campaigns to end that exception, which are ongoing in a number of states, really are technically abolitionist in nature, unfinished work of emancipation. It's interesting the ways in which peonage and prison labor raise issues about work and about labor and questions about freedom. The labor question's always been wrapped up with questions about freedom. Maybe you'd want to speak a little bit more about that. And of course, debt is is unfreeing and enslaving. Yeah, it's a good topic. I mean, there's some people that would argue that waged labor, any kind of waged labor is, is a form of unfreedom. And uh, I'm partial to that view. But just to focus on the debt piece of it, there are all sorts of very significant ways in which the imposition of debt limits people's mobility, compromises your capacity to choose another employer, and also constricts your imagination political imagination in addition to the imagination you need to create a livelihood in ways that are sustainable. And I think that's one of the reasons why the work of the Debt Collective is focused on student debt in particular, because it hits on all of those topics in a way. There's so many ways in which uh, student debt is a form of wage theft. And it's a way in which a would-be employee has to pay for their own job training, in a sense, to prepare for employment by taking on debt. And right. when they have a job and they're trying to, you know, they're trying to fulfill debt service, usually you need another job or two. So you're doing gig work, which is precarious. And I think one other aspect of this is we've seen a marked shift in the debt burden, demographic shift towards elderly people for the last decade or so. And a lot of that has to do with parents and grandparents taking out loans for their children and grandchildren. Right, like reverse mortgages and so forth. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. And that has an impact on employment because it means you... <laughs> That prevents you from retiring with dignity if you're facing that kind of debt service, not just for yourself, but also for your offspring or your grandchildren. And right. I, I understand that the biggest increase in gig labor among the population is among older people oh, really? for precisely that reason. Yes. And I think that's understudied. We just started a, a campaign for over 50. I don't have the figures off the top of my head, but a remarkable percentage of the student debt burden is borne by people over the age of 50. 50. We're not talking about millennials or younger at this point. Yeah, I'm one of them. <laughs> there you go. In the room. Um, 
You talked about the political imagination and the way in which indebtedness constrains the political imagination. And you can think about ways in which it would contribute to kind of acquiescence. But I wonder if you feel that we're reaching a tipping point, perhaps, towards revolt where people can barely take it anymore. So just if you talk a little bit about acquiescence versus revolt. Yeah, I like that. I like that. I think that's absolutely right. As you were talking, I was reminded uh, William Levitt, the mass housing builder, Levitt Towns and others once said that uh, no one who owns a house could be a communist because they're too busy and they're also laden down with a mortgage. But in terms of student debt, yeah, I, I mean, I certainly have noticed in my own you know, teaching career over the last couple of decades or so, you know, students fall asleep in class. Maybe it's, I'm a boring teacher, but maybe not. They're doing multiple jobs. They just don't have the time to be politically active in a way that we, you know, we are accustomed to expect students to be. And if you do know that you are going to be facing this lifetime of debt service and you have that in front of you, you're just practically speaking, you have to start imagining not just your education is transactional in nature, which is a very unfortunate outcome, especially from the point of view of an educator. But also you have to think about earning a livelihood or shooting for a livelihood that would be lucrative enough to cover that debt service. So you're already in your mind excluding less lucrative livelihoods that might be more rewarding, that might generate more social benefit and so on and so forth. So I think that's another way of describing the foreshortening of the political imagination. To what extent has the debtors collective worked with organized labor? And what do you see as the future for that? Well, we certainly tried to develop ties, you know, with the mainstream of the labor movement. And, you know, the AFL-CIO has been pretty good about, you know, backing, supporting calls for student debt abolition. The higher education unions, of course, are a little more, a little closer to the problem. And so they've been more responsive. But in general, I would say union officials are a a little slow to grasp how important this issue is to their members. To us, it's a no-brainer. If I could put it bluntly, I can't think of any union member, for example, who wouldn't want their children to go to a tuition-free quality college. That seems obvious. And so College for All, which is the slogan of the tuition-free college movement, should be much more central in or in the forefront of the labor movement's uh, agenda. In your talk, you described the work of the Debt Collective, amazing victory with regard to the Biden administration debt relief, which is now in jeopardy again, of course. But let's turn to your talk, which I think our listeners are going to find fascinating. With indebtedness comes powerlessness. And whether you're talking about your national elected officials who have to prioritize debt service to foreign banks over and above the social needs of their own citizenry, or whether we're talking about low-income households that are struggling to you know, juggle their smaller debt payments to smaller creditors. For all of them, the experience of being deeply in debt servitude places very heavy constraints on our political imagination and our political mobility. The solution to this predicament is something we all know about. It's collective organizing and it's collective action, which leads to empowerment and gives us leverage at the bargaining table. And that's why 
you know, trade unions were so sorely needed in the heyday of industrialization when struggle over wages was a frontline conflict. So too today, debtors unions are sorely needed in the age of financialization when the struggle over economic rents is a frontline conflict. And when the creditor class is extracting profits from the social factory far beyond the walls of the workplace. I, I'm not meaning to suggest that wage conflict is over. It never will be, but it has been reconfigured in the age of finance. And let me put it very bluntly, debts are the wages of the future. When you sign a loan, you're basically promising your future wages, right? Far in advance of the labor that you will be performing to earn those wages. And while the door is always open, the creditor's door is always open to individuals to go in and restructure your debt and you know, consolidate and uh, renegotiate your debts for individuals. But we only have real power when we go through that door together. That's why debtors unions are needed to leverage the collective power of debts and to stop the lords of finance from siphoning off all of our earnings. So the first organization of this kind already exists. It's called the Debt Collective. I was one of the co-founders in 2014. And in the years since then, it has established itself as a force that can deliver results and also project influence onto mainstream policymaking. All of the recent pressure on Sleepy Joe Biden to deliver student debt cancellation, for example, a lot of that was spearheaded by the Debt Collective and, and its allies its proven ability to deliver debt relief and also to enlist the support of key elected officials as allies. The Debt Collective had two predecessor groups, Occupy Student Debt Campaign and Strike Debt. I'm, I don't have time to describe them here, but some of you might remember Strike Debt's mutual aid project called the Rolling Jubilee, which we raised money from small donations and we bought a ton of debt on the secondary debt market for pennies on the dollar, which you can do, and then simply abolished it. In the years since then, we've used that instrument on several occasions, and we've managed to abolish several hundred million dollars worth of debt, medical debt, carceral debt, most recently school lunch debt, and we're working on auto loan deficiency debt. The kinds of debt that just shouldn't exist in this world, <laughs> in other words. Unlike these other previous organizations, the Debt Collective was founded explicitly as a debtor's union. And so we decided to start from the ground up and build this thing from a small group. Uh, we decided, But we decided to target a, a creditor in common, a large creditor in common, the Department of Education. So we organized a group of student debtors from low-income households who'd been to for-profit colleges. They mounted a high-profile debt strike. And then we found this little notice provision in the Higher Education Act, which guaranteed a debt discharge to all student debtors who had been misled or scammed by their college. So we helped tens and thousands of student debtors to file borrower defense claims. And over the years, we've managed to get several billion dollars worth of debt relief for those debtors using these claims. Now, when the Biden administration came to power, we set ourselves a larger target, much larger target, which was $1.7 trillion worth of aggregate student debt, and have been using a variety of tactics to pursue that goal over the last few years, 
old and new media weaponry, the clout of well-situated allies inside the Beltway, arguments and knowledge accumulated from 10 years of debtor organizing, and also the use of small-scale strikes as a fair warning of the potential power of tens of millions of debtors participating in larger scale strikes. I want to just point out that although sleepy Joe Biden went for the barest possible minimal amount of debt to cancel in his recent executive order, it still amounts to the largest household debt jubilee in American history and would have been unthinkable until the efforts of activists made it politically unavoidable for Joe Biden for whom that cancellation went against every political bone in his body. And these successful efforts to win debt relief are proof of concept for us. Proof of concept that collective action can actually produce results. Organizationally, we have several chapters in a variety of cities. We have uh, several thousand members, many of whom pay dues. We do a lot of political education work through our Jubilee schools. But the strength of the union does not depend on member density. And with this kind of union, it probably never will. It's a different kind of union in that regard. Organizing around debt is not like organizing around wages or organizing around rents. Unlike workers, debtors don't have a common workplace where they can establish relationships of trust with one another. And unlike tenants, they don't have neighbors with whom they have relationships of familiarity and can build solidarity. So traditional modes of organizing don't work so well or in the same way. That said, there are some financial contracts where the creditor in common is a well-known entity, is deeply resented and easily targeted as a result. I would say also that debt strikes and mass refusals of payments are just as powerful in the court of public opinion as withdrawal of labor or, or the withholding of rents. And lastly, when we're talking about liability, financial liability, you might think, yes, of course, owing billions of dollars of debt is a huge liability. But what if we were able to leverage those debts collectively, not just to win relief, but also to help dismantle the neoliberal infrastructure of user finance, social goods, which has gotten us to this point in the first place? John Paul Getty used to say, the banker, you should know, he used to say that if you owe the bank $100, then that's your problem. But if you owe the bank $100 million, that's the bank's problem. So there's a lot of latent power there to be tapped, and we haven't even begun to do it yet. The potential for that, it seems to me to be immense and colossal in scope. Now, winning debt relief is all very well. It is good. It relieves hardship. It allows people to start over again, but it does not stop the clock of accumulation. The debt keeps piling up, and debt is only a symptom in that regard. It's not the root cause of the problem. To get to the root cause of the problem, we need to definancialize social goods like education and housing and healthcare and, yes, transportation, which is also a social good. That's why we've also been active in helping to draft College for All legislation, and we recently launched organizing campaigns in carceral debt, medical debt, and housing debt. So we hope to be active in helping to, to draft legislation and also lobby for housing for all and Medicare for all and transportation for all, a movement that doesn't yet exist but should in my opinion. Last thing I want to say is I want to address the working class in the title of this symposium. Debt is something that 
the working class have a very intimate familiarity with and always have had. Debt has been used to deepen labor exploitation in the days of slavery, indenture, sharecropping, all the way up to the current day when we have widespread bonded labor of migrant workers, where we have payday lending and other forms of poverty banks and prison labor and so on and so forth. The experience of taking out new loans in order to service old loans has also been a chronic experience for working class people. It's a scourge of working class life. The difference is in the last few decades, we've seen this experience march up into the middle classes and affect a much larger mass of the population. And unfortunately, or maybe fortuitously, that's the point at which it attracts a lot of media attention right? When it hits the middle class and a lot of public scrutiny. And that has sometimes bizarre consequences. In response to the recent student debt cancellation, the executive order, we heard a chorus of voices on the right and in the center, and even from voices on the left who should have known better, who, who said in response that this was a handout to well-heeled families who really didn't need the relief. Right, despite the fact that it was pretty obvious that the vast majority of the beneficiaries of that executive order will be from low-income households and they will be disproportionately black, brown, and indigenous. That is the case with student debt. It's also the case with all the other debt classes I've mentioned today. Working class people have the most to gain from challenging the concentrated power of finance and the elected officials who do its bidding. And those gains are something that we, we have to keep in mind and in focus as we, this panel is about the future of labor, right? <laughs> Not the future of work, which is a favorite TED Talk topic, but the future of labor. We have to keep those concerns in the forefront of our efforts to build cross-class campaigns. And these are the most difficult campaigns really to build. But cross-class campaigns are what we need. And I hope that our debtors union initiative can be part of that. So. Thank you. Issues like those raised in today's podcast are taken up not only in classroom discussions at the School of Labor and Urban Studies, but also in our journal, New Labor Forum. In fact, the current issue features articles that assess high-octane organizing at Starbucks and early efforts by the Teamsters to confront Amazon. You can find these articles on our website at newlaborforum.cuny.edu, where we encourage you to subscribe to the journal as well. And to learn more about Reinventing Solidarity, the podcast, and listen to other episodes, visit slu.cuny.edu slash podcast.